everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning back in to our series, Israel's Anointing. And what we're trying to do here is provide biblical insight into God's heart and purpose for Israel. But at the same time, you're going to find that it will also reveal God's heart and purpose for the nations. Now, today is episode two, and we've titled it The Awaited Messiahs, plural, and the beginning of the story. Now, I left off last episode explaining that although it is essential to have the facts and historical background of what is occurring in the Middle East between Israel and, quote, Palestine, and that's a word I'm going to explain in a future segment, or between Israel and radicals within the Islamic world, make no mistake, what we are witnessing unfold across the earth is very spiritual in nature. You see, something all Christians should start trying to understand is that these, the three monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all awaiting their Savior, a Savior who is going to right the world of all of its problems. It's not just Christians awaiting their Savior, but Jews and Muslims both. And the coming of each of these saviors or messiahs will come with accompanying signs, which I'll go into in greater detail on a future episode. But let me just highlight this for a moment. You see, for Christians, we're waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to return, right? And so there's gonna, he's going to return with accompanying signs. And you can read Matthew 24, Mark 13, And Luke 21 in the Gospels, for example, to get an idea of what kind of signs need to come and take place prior to Christ's return. There's other passages in Scripture, but those three are a very good place to start. Now, for the Jews, they too are awaiting for their Messiah, Mashiach. The Jews that have not been born again yet, I should say. And so they are looking for the signs that the prophets gave. And they are also looking at the signs that are predicted in the Gemara, the Mishnah, and the Midrash, their additional writings. For them, all of those signs must take place one by one. And so they believe that they're very close to Mashiach's return. But therefore, they also need to make sure that they are committing themselves to Torah observance, in particular keeping the Shabbat, because Orthodox Judaism has long taught that Messiah will only come once all Jews are sanctifying the Shabbat. And then we have the Muslims. For the Muslims, among the major signs, the most anticipated and central sign that Muslims are awaiting is the coming of a man known as the Mahdi. In Arabic, al-Mahdi means the guided one. This is their savior. Now, throughout the Islamic world today, there is a call for the restoration of the Islamic Caliphate. And if you do not know what the Caliphate is, the last time there was a Caliphate was during the Ottoman Empire, which was defeated by the British Empire during World War I. And what the Caliphate does is it unites all Muslims around the world under one headship. Well, the head of a Caliphate is called the Caliph or the Caliph or the Khalifa and may be viewed somewhat as like the Pope of the Muslims. Now, the caliph is viewed as the vice-regent for Allah on the earth. 
Now, it's important to understand that when Muslims call for the restoration of the caliphate, it is ultimately the Mahdi that they are calling for. For the Mahdi is the awaited final caliph or caliph, however you want to pronounce it. He's the final awaited caliph of Islam, that headship. And as such, Muslims everywhere will be obligated to follow the Mahdi, whether you are a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim. And just the other day, despite being an ally, an ally, Turkey's Erdogan, that's a whole other episode too, he gave a very concerning and troubling speech from Istanbul, uniting the Muslim world. And so people are keeping an eye out on if he is trying to reestablish the caliphate. So what we're witnessing unfold is much larger than many people understand. It's very spiritual in nature. You have Islam following their holy books, waiting for their savior. You have Jews following their holy books, waiting for their savior. And you have Christians following the Bible, waiting for our savior. And so my question is this, if other religions these two other religions are carefully watching the signs and also keeping an eye on all of the prophecies concerning their faith. Shouldn't we? Now today, I know I said I was going to go through the first five books of the Bible. And what I mean by that, I'm not going into great detail, but what I'm trying to provide you with is a framework so that you can see where the unfolding story of all of this began. It's the unfolding story of Israel and it's also the unfolding story of the Arab world, where it took place and when. Now, Christianity finds itself in this story because our Savior, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, of course, is rooted in the story of Abraham and again going all the way back to Adam. So we too need to pay close attention to this. So every book in the Bible is written in a context of time and space. There's a time frame from when things occurred and a place where they occurred. And both aspects, time and space, are important to God. Right now, around the world, most of us are focusing on space, where events are unfolding, we're focused on Israel, we're looking at Gaza, we're focused on Turkey, we're looking at Iran, we're, we're looking at various cities where protests are occurring or college campuses where there's a bunch of anti-Semitism, right? We're all aware of where things are occurring, but we're missing the timing piece, which should cause us to ask, what is happening on God's timetable? And so my encouragement to you is this, as you go through your Bible, and you are reading every book of the Bible, read each book of the Bible in a context of time and space. Where is this happening and when? You see, time is very important to God. So much so that he consecrated a whole day, time, at creation, day seven, and he made it holy. He didn't consecrate a place at this point, but he consecrated time and made it holy. This day later became the Sabbath day for the Jewish people. It was a day of rest. It was a day that is holy and consecrated unto God. It is time. 
that he wanted his people to honor. So time is definitely on God's radar. So the events that unfolded on October 7th in Israel were definitely on his radar, especially because the war began on a Sabbath, a period of time that he made holy. Don't miss the significance of time. Jesus himself speaks to the multitudes in Luke 12, 54 to 56 of discerning the time. When he said, whenever he said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the West, immediately you say a shower's coming. And so it is. And when you see the South wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Well, those words apply so applicably today. We can discern ski season. We can discern uh, when it's hurricane season. We can discern all kinds of things across the earth, right? But things are unfolding all around us. And most Christians, and I'm not saying this critically, a lot of us cannot discern the time. And so the key piece to understanding Israel's future in the prophetic writings will be understanding the importance that God puts on time and his timing. So let's go. Now, I'm, I'm coming at the Bible as a person who believes it from cover to cover. So everything shared in these episodes are going to be with the belief that all of that is true. And you can do with that whatever you want. So the first five books, let's look at them briefly now in the context of time and space. And in that, you will see when Israel's story began. Now in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures were written in the form of scrolls. And those scrolls were all rolled up. And as they would unwrap a scroll, the first word or words that came across would be the title of that scroll. So in just unwrapping the first bit of a scroll, they would identify which book their scriptures were in. For example, the first scroll in Hebrew was called Bereshit, which is in the beginning. That is the first word they saw when it was unrolled. We know it as Genesis. You see, when the Old Testament uh, in Hebrew, the Old Testament was translated into Greek about 250 years before Jesus was born. They changed the name to Genesis, which means origin or beginning, which is an accurate title. Think about the book of Genesis. It's the origin of everything we know. Our world, the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars of all of planet Earth. It's the origin of plants and seeds and birds, and fish, and animals, and humans, the origin of male and female. We have the origin of sex, so we can procreate, the origin of marriage, the origin of family life, all of this. We have the origin of civilization, the origin of government, the origin of culture, arts, and science. We even have the origin of sin, death, murder, and war. And we even have the origin of sacrifice, both animal and human. So Genesis is the origin of everything we know and considered the book of beginnings. Now, the name of the second book, Exodus, gets a little more complicated. It's a Greek word that means 
going out, or as we would say, exit, right? And it points to the, con- the in the context of Israel leaving Egypt. Well, to the Hebrew readers, this is the book Shemot, which means names, as found in the first verse, when it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. So they call it the names. Leviticus derives its name from the tribe of Levites, one of the tribes of Israel. However, to the Hebrew reader, it's called uh, uh, Vayakra, which means, and he called. It opens saying, the Lord called Moses. Then you have the book of Numbers, which is precisely what it says in the Greek. It's a book of statistics. However, to the Hebrew reader, it's called Bamidbar, which means in the desert. They came out of Egypt. They set up the sacrificial system. And then the book breaks down the people that came out of Egypt. 600,000 men came out of Egypt, plus women and children, probably close to two and a quarter million. Then Deuteronomy, Deutero means second, and nomos means law. So the name Deuteronomy means second law because God gave them his law twice, once at Sinai and once just before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. But to the Hebrew reader, it's called Devarim, the words. It's a book where Moses begins his repetition of the Torah. That's why the Ten Commandments come twice in the first five books of the Bible, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. So we all kind of have an idea of that, right? Now, who are these five books about? Well, Genesis is a universal book. It's about everybody. It's about the human race. And then as soon as you get to Exodus, you're into a book that zooms down on one particular people, one nation that was birthed named Israel. So it's a national book. When you turn to Leviticus, it zooms down even more, only on one tribe out of that nation, the tribe of Levi. Levi. So it zooms down from universal to national to tribal. But as soon as you get past Leviticus, it opens back out again, and the book of Numbers is about the whole nation again, and the book of Deuteronomy puts Israel against the backdrop of the entire world among the nations. And you go back to a universal standpoint again. So it's like a camera lens, zoom lens, that's going in and out as you go through the books. And where are these events taking place? Well, it begins with the whole earth in Genesis. And then it begins to focus in on Chaldea, which is modern day Iraq, Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham lived. And then it goes into Canaan, which is a, which is a, Name of a land that is named after a descendant of Noah who settled in what would eventually become Israel. So it's a, it kind of has a broad scope over multiple areas. But then in Exodus, it zooms in again to focus on one place, the land of Egypt, and then the sojourn of the Israelites from there. And then Leviticus zooms in a bit further and focuses in on one area, Mount Sinai. Saudi Arabia. Then it zooms back out again to their journey through the Negev, Edom, and Moab, Jordan, and then back to Canaan, eventually Israel. And then lastly, when did these occur? Well, the Old Testament covers approximately 2,000 years. We are currently 2,000 years after Christ. 
However, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, they cover a separate 2,000 years. And it's what some people refer to as the prehistoric period. That means prehistory to Israel. So Genesis covers centuries in the past. And in Genesis 1 to 11, we have events that take place such as the creation of the universe, the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the flood and the Tower of Babel. It's all about mankind. It's not about God's chosen people yet. It's about the human race pre-Israel, before their history began. However, by the time you reach the end of chapter 11, a man named Abram comes onto the stage of the story. Then Exodus zooms in a bit and covers years. So you have Genesis that covers centuries, and then you have Exodus that covers years, and scholars suggest three to four hundred years. Leviticus zooms in a little further and only covers one month. Then Numbers zooms back out again and covers years again, but only 40 years. And then Deuteronomy looks forward through the centuries to the future history of Israel. And that's the first five books. And in those five books is the birth of the nation of Israel, but it is also the birth of the Arab people. Well, I hope this was helpful in your journey of discovery. In our next episode, we are going to begin our journey of Israel and the surrounding nations. We hope it blesses you. Take care. Mm -hmm.